We are in part six of our wake up series through the book of Isaiah. And I entitled today's message, wake up that you might be next. Now, there are two groups of people I worry about when I'm preaching through Isaiah. There's two groups that I worry about when I talk about judgment and discipline and harshness and repentance. And the first group are you little softies. I worry about you squishy folk. Those are the kind of people that every time they come to church and I mention anything about judgment, you immediately go, see, I knew God didn't like me, and you get sad. And you go, every time Pastor Lance says to repent, he stares at me. And he's always looking at me, and he's constantly thinking that, you know, and I know God doesn't like me, and he's disappointed in me, and I'm heartbroken. Hold on, squishy. It is not all about you. You need to mellow out. God loves you. God loves you intensely. And I want you to know that if you have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, the Father sees you perfected in Christ. And he not only loves you, but he likes you. He enjoys you. And he wants to be with you. So yes, we are going to be reading through a book, remember, that is about the end of a nation because of their sin. And there's going to be a lot of exploding and judgment and tearing apart and stuff like that. That doesn't mean God hates you. And that you immediately need to apply it and go, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. All right. The second group that I worry about are all you folks that don't care. It's all the folks that come to church and you observe. You sometimes are drug here by somebody else. You don't even want to be here. I'm worried about you. I'm worried about those that have hard hearts or you're consistently saying, if only so-and-so heard this message, watch out. You might be next. Stop looking at everybody else. God is looking at you. You, Here's the problem with you being invited here and you don't want to come, but you're trying to play the game because of the Christian person attached to you. You are hearing the message every week. God will say, I talked to you. I told you. Well, I wasn't really paying attention. That's not his problem. That's your problem. You have been warned. You have been talked to. You do not just get to walk into the presence of God And walk out and pretend like nothing happened. He notified you. He put you on notice. And he is now ready to move forward. You must interact with what you are hearing. If you are hard hearted. You're going to miss all of that. Listen. The same things that God attacks in society. He will go after in us. I'm going to give you a list of ten things. Ten questions to ask whether or not God is about to blow you up. Ten questions for you to ask. Now, I'm going to have these when I post my notes later today. You will be able to read through them. Last night at the 6 o'clock service, I started going through them, and they kept going, wait, 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 because they're trying to write them down. All right, I'm going to go through them rapidly because we have a large amount. So what I need you to do is I need you to hear with your heart right now, and then you'll be able to take notes on the message portion, all right? And you can download those notes from the city right after the service. Here we go. Ten questions to find out if God might blow you up. Number one, do you make the majority of your decisions in selfishness? Are you still in charge of everything in your life? Then God might blow you up. Number two, do you relish in your victories and look down on those you defeat? And you know what I'm talking about. If it's constantly, I look better than so-and-so, and wow, look at them, and I got this, and they don't have that. If that's your attitude, if in your job you crush your opponents, 
you might have a laser target on your chest from God. Number three, do you intellectually know that God exists, but you live as though he doesn't? Do you intellectually know, you know God's real, but you are not living like it? God might be coming after you. Number four, do you gain from the loss of others? Is your very livelihood based on other people's failure? Are you trying at all times to figure out ways that you can glean while they go down? Number five, has God been calling you repeatedly, but you turned off the phone? Here's the problem with that. If God can't reach you by phone, he might need to come over. (laughs) Number six, do you take advantage of other people or continually manipulate to get your way? Are you the kind of person that will cry in the right ways? You will cry, you will whine in the right ways. You will nag in the right ways. You spend all your time manipulating everybody around you. God will not deal with that very long. Number seven, are you stubborn and refuse to change? If you are stubborn and ever use the phrase, that's just how I am, you're asking God to blow you up. He is, that is a temptation to him to just go, you know what? I'm really good with stubborn people. Watch this, right? I mean, Paul the Apostle was not an easy guy to move until God got a hold of him, right? Number eight, has your hate in your heart because of past hurts transformed you into a greater monster than the one you hate? Have you allowed your bitterness to grow so severe? And you're going to go, but, but God, I'm the victim here. Yeah, but in your victimization... You have allowed a wall to go around your heart that you have kept God out. He's not going to allow that. He'll break right through it. Number nine, do you consistently take advantage of God's grace? It's this, it's not a big deal. Who cares? I'm a Christian. Jesus died for it. It's no big deal. I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. There's tons of grace. I can do whatever I want. If I want to go to church, that's fine. If I don't, that's fine. If I want to be able to read the Bible, that's fine. If I don't, that's fine. If I want to sin, that's fine. If I don't, that's fine. Are you constantly taking advantage of grace? Because God will show you his way. Number 10, are you sitting in God's rightful throne on your life? Do not sit in God's chair. He will get you out. Listen, as yesterday morning, as I was preparing uh, in my devotions, I was just spending time reading and I pulled out a random selection of just to get my heart into the mind of God before I began to pray. First verse I came across in a random selection was this. Proverbs 29.1. He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. That's tough. Let me say it again. He who is often reproved, often corrected, yet stiffens his neck, refuses to listen or change, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. You don't want that. The next verse that captured my attention for us today was Proverbs 30, verse 12. Listen to this one. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. There are those that are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their own filth. We cannot say that we have not been warned. It is so easy to see the sin in other people, isn't it? 
I mean, you look out and you see other people and what they do wrong and you go, I can't believe you do that. Really? That's sickening. What is wrong with you? I thought you were a Christian. But all of the sin in your life, you excuse away. Oh, well, that's because I'm in. Oh, well, that's because of my need. Oh, well, that's because. Here's the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. We ought to use mirrors more. We ought to use mirrors more. That which you find sickening in other people is sickening in you. If you haven't already, turn with me to Isaiah 10, verse 5. It is page 574 in the Bibles under the seat in front of you. I'm going to give you a history lesson once again. You know that was coming. I'm going to throw up a map here on the front screen that we're going to leave up the majority of the time. And as I give you kind of an understanding, kind of a, an in-depth background, you're not going to understand the passage that we're going to go through about the Assyrian Empire unless we talk about the Assyrian Empire. All right? So here's kind of how it goes. Remember, back then there was a series of superpowers that were kind of at play in the Middle East. And if I talk about the Middle East, I'm talking about this region. You have Israel, you have Iran, Iraq. These are all modern day names, right? Turkey is up here. You have Egypt down here, uh, Arabia, right? Um, back then, the big superpowers were the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Egyptians. All the little guys in the middle would kind of get beat up on along the way. So for us to understand, God is going to utilize the incredible superpower of Assyria to come in and bring judgment upon the nation of Israel, both north and south. Remember, Isaiah is in the south, and when he talks about things happening with Assyria, he acts like it's one person. It was not just one king. Isaiah led a ministry over 50 years long. He was underneath four kings of the southern kingdom. That means that during Assyria's reign, while Isaiah was alive, there were multiple kings there. It's not just one guy. Different kings handled things different ways. Sometimes they were quiet. Sometimes they came upon the nations, right? Well, this is what we need to understand. Isaiah writes in a conceptual prophetic way not in a let's chop it up chronological way so you're going to go wait a second i thought we already dealt with assyria in chapter 10 why are they back around in chapter 26 because it's not chronological it's conceptual so he's going to refer to assyria in this chapter on how it's going to interact with israel over the long haul so sometimes we're right there in the story, sometimes we're a little bit behind, sometimes we're a little bit ahead. So this is what we need to know about Assyria. You're going to look and you're going to go, Assyria, who cares about that? Well, check this out. The Assyrians got their name from the God that they served. They served a God, false God, of course, by the name of Asher. They were Ashurians. That was later transformed into Assyrians. That name is also, if you want to go to another language, Asher was known as Ishtar, if you're familiar with that. Now, the Assyria area, originally its capital was a place called Kalna. It was moved later to Nineveh. 
Archaeologists, in examining this area of the world, know that this is one of the oldest civilizations in the world. As a matter of fact, they have stuff that dates back that this area was settled around 5,000 B.C. So let's go back 7,000 years from now. This is an ancient, ancient place. The Assyrians do not emerge until Sargon, the king of Akkad, begins the Assyrian Empire around 2500 B.C. So we're going back 5,500 years that this place started. And you go, so what do we care about those people? Listen to this. The Assyrian Empire was the first place that keys and locks were used. The first place where keeping time was developed. They had the first paved roads, the first postal system, the first magnifying glasses, the first libraries, the first plumbing and flush toilets pause the first electric batteries they played the first guitars they had the first aqueducts they had the first arch and it goes on and on and on the assyrian empire has created what we build our civilizations upon the syrians are a big deal they were around for a really long time now After all the years, ultimately, they ended up getting taken over by the superpower Babylon in 612 B.C. That's after Isaiah's time. They had their heyday, and then they got taken over. But check this out. They were quiet for the next 600 years. That's a long time to be quiet as a superpower. In 350 B.C., 400 Assyrian leaders rose up and tried to rebel and restore the Assyrian Empire. Babylon didn't like that and castrated all of them. That calmed things down. They remained quiet in a variety of ways. Here's what's ironic about it. Remember how I told you last week that the Assyrians were known for their vicious warfare? And they were all crazy and nasty, mean people. And they'd sweep in and put people on stakes and they'd torture them. And we have all kinds of stuff in history that talks about their torture methods. And they had war machines. And I mean, it was a pretty crazy place. Here's what's so ironic about it. Even though they remained Assyrians until 250 AD, in 33 AD, everything changed. For the Assyrians, what happened in 33 AD? Jesus Christ was crucified. You go, what? What does that have to do with it? Tradition says that three disciples went from here up to here and started a church. Who are they? Thomas, Didymus, and Bartholomew. Those three allegedly came and planted what they call the first church of Jesus Christ ever. Now, I'm going to argue with you because I think the first church was in Jerusalem, but that's a whole different ballgame. It caught on fire. The Assyrian Empire began to expand and changed in 250 AD from being Assyrians to being the first nation to ever define themselves as a nation as Christians. They were a massive Christian nation. They had missionaries that were so incredibly wildly known that by the time we get to the end of the 6th century, the end of the 500s, 
they already have sent missionaries that have locked into China, all the way on the opposite side of Asia. They've taken over the entire region for Jesus Christ. By the end of the 12th century, the Assyrian church was larger than the Orthodox church and the Catholic church combined. That is a massive, massive church. Then after 600 years of Christianity, the Saudi Arabians came in and began to take over the area and they began to tax all Christians just for being Christians. As the tax went in and the pressures got more increased, they began to see conversions to Islam. And to this day, after 600 years of intense Christianity, in 1300 A.D., they became a Muslim region and have been ever since. What does that have to do with our story? Well, after Egypt got beat up by God in 1200 B.C., Remember the Exodus and that whole, let's beat up the Egyptians and let the Hebrews go, right? Moses, let my people go thing. They settled in here, and this region for 300 years had relative peace. This is King David and King Saul and King Solomon, right? They didn't have any superpowers come beat them up. Well, you know that when the cat's away, the mice will play, and so all the little guys fought each other. The Arameans fought the Israelis, and the Israelis fought the Philistines, and the Philistines fought the Midians, and the Midians fought, right? All the little guys went after each other. No, it's mine. No, it's my toy, my toy, right? And they all fought. But all the big dogs left them alone. That is until Assyria got new leadership. In 745 BC, a new king came to town. He decided to expand So he comes down and through a series of kings, they beat on all the little guys and they come in crushing them, crushing them, taking over Syria, taking over the north in 722. They, as a matter of fact, came through and devastated everything all the way up to the edge of Jerusalem. And it looked like they were going to take the south as well. That's where Isaiah lived. That's where the king was. And that's where our story begins. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5. We're just going to read the first two verses. It says this. Ah, Assyria, God says, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would not be of those sort who become a godless nation, that even though, Lord, we know of your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness and the death of you, Jesus, on the cross, may we not live as atheists, live as pagans, embrace the culture around us, put their gods on our mantle, absorb into their way of living. God, restore to us today a fear of you that is healthy and respectful. Show us what it is to repent. Minister to our hearts in a conviction manner. And allow us to be humble in your sight. For God, we do not want your rod to turn against us in correction. May we fall before you now in respect. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Let's pick it up in verse 5. Ah, Syria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Do you realize that God will utilize the wicked for his bidding? You need to wrap your mind around that because what we do not understand is we look out in the world and we go, why are all the bad guys getting more and more territory? Why are they getting more popular? Why do they seem to win all the time? Understand God is using them for a purpose. It does not excuse them. They are on temporary assignment. They are not pardoned. They're being used. I've shared with you in this environment and in the Ask Pastor Lance environment that the only reason why Satan and his demons are still around is because God is using them for his purposes. You go, well, how would he use them? They don't want to obey him. Listen, if you have someone that is vehemently angry against God's creation and wants to destroy it, and you are going to bring judgment, just take your hand off of them, let them attack, and then cap him back down. God is using them. They don't want to do his plan. They have to do his plan. Because here's the truth. We know the end of the story. What does Revelation say happens to the devil and his angels? They are cast into the lake of fire. That's the way it's going to go. When he's done using them, they're gone. There is no superpower able to fight against God. There is no rebels that are independent of God. God will use the wicked for his purposes, whether they like it or not. Here's the sad thing. The same rod that is coming from Assyria to beat down on Israel in judgment is the same rod that freed them from Egypt. How did the rod go from defending Israel to attacking Israel? What changed? They became a godless nation and they said, God, I don't want you anymore. Have we not talked about in the last few weeks how similar that is to America? That we said, we don't want you anymore. We don't want you around. We don't want you in our schools. We don't want you in our judicial system. We don't want you anywhere around. God, stay out of our business. That's not good. That's not good for us. Verse 6, against a godless nation, I send Assyria. A godless nation? These are your kids. These are the chosen people. They're the Jewish people. What do you mean a godless nation? He said, I don't care what they are by birth. Their hearts are not with me. They have embraced the culture. They have rejected me. They're treating people poorly. Just before this... In our last week's sermon, we remember Isaiah was saying, woe to those who take advantage of the hurting and the oppressed. Woe to those who try to rip everybody off. Woe to those. Those were Israel people. Israel was not helping anyone. They were not doing what God asked them to do. They were all selfish. He said, just like you don't help the hurting, I'm not going to help you. I am against the people of my wrath. I will command him to take spoil and seize plunder and tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. The Assyrians are not trying to honor God. They're just selfish. They want more stuff. They want to kill more people. They want more gold. That's just the way it goes. It is not in his heart, uh, excuse me, it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations and not just a few of them. I'm just organizing the river that is raging. 
For he says, are not my commanders all kings? This is where you see the arrogance of Assyria. He says, am I not the king of kings? In the ancient world, that was a common phrase used because it was practical. Why? If you are a king and you beat up all the other nations and they have kings and they're under you, you are technically what? A king of kings. We get offended by that phrase. Why? Because we know that phrase rightfully belongs to our Lord God as the only king of kings. But Assyria is like, I beat up kings. I'm the king of kings. Careful, you're sitting in God's chair. Then he gives a list of wins that he's done to talk about how big he is. Is not Calno taken in 738 BC, like Carchemish taken in 717? Is not Hamath taken in 720, like Arpad taken in 738? Is not Samaria taken in 722, like Damascus taken in 734? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her idols? I kill everybody. They got better looking idols than you do. You think I'm going to stop because of you? I'm going to march all the way through. I kill everybody. I could do what I want when I want. That is what Assyria is saying. They have this arrogance rising up, this evil, this wickedness. And they're saying, I will march right through. What, you think your gods are big and bad? They've never stopped me. I could destroy you at will. When we get into this, and you're going to find out God ends up crushing them and driving them into the ground. Here's our problem. We live in middle class modern-day America, in the Placer County, and we look at the Bible and read stuff like Isaiah, and we get, God is so mean. Give peace a chance. What'd you say? Give peace a chance. I want God to rain hellfire down. These people need to be destroyed. Oh, Lance, that's so not PC. Let's get into a more modern mindset. Here's your problem. You keep thinking that somehow your world is different than their world back then. You look at the Bible and you think that, oh, nobody should be warring and blah, blah, blah. Listen to this. I say one name, you know the last name, yeah? Adolf. You know who Hitler is. You know what he did. We're not going ancient world. We're going to our last generation. The generation before us, they know who Hitler is. What did he do? He grabbed Jews. He grabbed anyone he deemed unworthy. He grabbed thousands upon thousands upon ten thousands of Jews, shoved them all, grabbed families, ripped them apart, put all the kids in one train, all the parents in another. The kids are screaming and fearful and worried about what's going to happen. They take all the parents, shove them into trains, stack them in, shove them in and slam the door shut. Take them for hours in the sun, days in the sun, moving across the country into another place towards concentration camps. In there, while they're driving, they have no food, they have no water, they're dying in their own filth. They can't even fall over because they are packed in. When they get to their destination, they slide the door open, the dead fall out, the live walk over them, and they begin to sift them based on who can work and who cannot. If you cannot, you are gassed immediately. 
whether you're a child or you're elderly, whatever it is, you will die today. They will burn your bodies in ovens. Those that can work are put into concentration camps in the worst kind of life. And the minute you are no longer useful, you will be gassed too. You want to give peace a chance? Or do you want fire to rain down on Hitler's head? In the Holocaust, they cried out, God, deliver us. Save us. But no, we're too distant from that. We don't even remember what that kind of stuff is like. You know anything about Mussolini? You know anything about Stalin? Do you know anything about the other genocide that has gone on across the world? How about what's going on right now? Saddam Hussein. You know the leader of Iraq, living in luxury, living, having parties, as many women as they want, all the alcohol, the gold, everything else. They're partying it up while they use chemical weapons on their own people. They kill at will. They're selfish and self-indulgent and destroy people. You know what I wanted to happen? I wanted fire to rain down on his head. Osama bin Laden. Not only the head of Al-Qaeda that launched the attack against the USS Cole, he was the one that bombed the World Trade Center. Then, ultimately, he's the mastermind that ended up causing the New York City Twin Towers incident on 9-11, where over 3,000 people burned alive and had their buildings fall down on them. You know what I want to happen to him? There are bad people in this world, wicked, horrible. I get it. You're insulated. I get it. You think everything's cool. I get it that when we go to Walmart and Target and everything else, everything seems fine. And why is the Bible so mean? That is not the world they live in. They live in a world with bad, bad people. We want to keep going with leaders? How about Coney? He was just in Uganda. You know what he does? He kills children. If they do not fight for him and he gives them guns, they do not have parents because all their parents died of AIDS. He kills them and lets their bodies rot out in the sun. And when Uganda finally chased him into the Sudan, he just does it there. He steals their food. He steals their money and they just die. It's happening. Genocide right now in our world. Oh, but it doesn't happen in our backyard. The Bible's mean. Do you want God to just let that go? Or do you want justice? Do you want God to shut them down? When the Lord has finished his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, meaning discipline against his own people, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look of his eyes. Pride doesn't get away. For he says, the king of Assyria says, just like Lucifer said, just like we say. By the strength of my hand, I have done this. Really? Did you do that? By my wisdom, for I have understanding. I'm brilliant. I remove the boundaries of people when they try to stop me and I plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of peoples as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken. So I've gathered all the earth and there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. I can pick and grab whatever I want. 
Because I have the guns. I have the warfare. I can dominate. I can come in and steal when I want to steal. I can kill when I want to kill. What are you going to do? Try to stop me? You got nothing on me. I'm king of kings. Can you imagine the vileness of arrogance in light of who God is? Seriously? Here's God's response. Really? You're that, you're that right? You, you're a big shot? Oh, look, you can't even breathe unless I go like this with your little lungs. You're never going to get blood coursing through your body unless every so many times during a minute I squeeze your little heart and let it pump through. You want to stop breathing? I'll take my hand off you. I will shut you down. You can do nothing without me. You think that you're a king of kings? You're a speck of dirt on a ball of dirt I created by my mind. Don't you ever stand up against me. You want to try to spit the infinite distance between your mouth and my face? You want to stand up against me? I'm the creator. You are not. You try to harm other people, use them for your glory. I deserve glory. You are nothing. Nothing but selfishness waging through your veins. When I say you're done, you are done. I can stop your heart. I can crush your skull. I can stop your mind. I'm in charge. Shall the axe boast over him who cuts down with it? Is that what we're talking about now? What, the saw can magnify itself against the one who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it? As if a staff should lift him who's not wood? What, is that how it works now? Now the little creatures made of dust are going to tell me what to do? Therefore, the warrior God, the Lord God of hosts, will send wasting sickness among the stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. 701 B.C., Assyria came raging all the way up to Jerusalem. And in one night, the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 of them and said, go home. Wasting disease. And you're dead now. The light of Israel, God, will become a fire and his holy one a flame and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars. In one day, God said, I will arise and defend my people. The glory of Assyria's new forest, of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body and it will be as a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few when I'm done with it that a child can write them down. Do you see the glory God gets in his victory over the wicked? When Hitler was gone and the Nazi regime was done, there's glory. Glory to God. The bad guy's gone. So many of us can't wrap our minds around hell. I don't like hell. Hell seems so mean. Hell, blah, 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 blah. The Bible tells you exactly why hell and the lake of fire are here. It spelled it out for you. It says, and the lake of fire, which was what? Prepared for the devil and his angels. Well, that sounds awfully mean. No, it doesn't. Because you forget what Satan does to you. Because you've been playing on his team for so long. You don't see him as a bad guy. Here's what Satan does. He torments your children in their dreams. 
He causes sickness. He causes death. He causes horrible things. He breaks up your marriage. He causes temptation. He wages war against your children's psyche and their hearts. He goes after them when they are weak. He will beat up on you when you are down. This is what he does. Will there not be glory when he is cast into the lake of fire? Do we want God to just let everything go? You do know God wins, right? And when God wins, guess who wins along with him? Those that are on his team. Are you on his team? Verse 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them. They try to rely on Assyria. How'd that work out? Pretty badly. But they will then lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. They will refocus. A remnant will return. Well, that's interesting because that's Isaiah's first son's name. You remember? A remnant will return. That's his name. The remnant of Jacob, they will return to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will remain when I'm done with my judgment. Destruction is decreed, but it is overflowing with righteousness. God never blows up for no reason. God never just hurts people for no reason. He's not bad. Any destruction he brings is for pure reasons always. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of the earth. Do you realize that the majority of all correction of God's people in the Bible always has the same intent? Return to me. That's always his call. It's never, I'm done with you, I'm sick of you, I don't want you anymore, you're no good to me. It's always come home. I will humble you. I will crush you down because I want you to stop hurting everyone. Come home. Come to me. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the warrior God, O my people who dwell in Jerusalem, dwell in Zion. Be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with a rod and lift up their staff against you like the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end. My anger will be directed toward their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. You remember that story? God comes in after seven years of being under the Midianites. God raises up a deliverer, some guy that's scared out of his mind, hiding in the dark. God said, you're going to be my warrior. He said, I think that's a bad choice. He said, well, it doesn't matter. I'm the one that's going to fight the war. I need you to lead my people. All right, what are we going to do? Assemble an army. He gets 32,000 warriors of Israel. God says, that's too many. I'm never going to get glory for that. How about 300? With 300 men armed with torches, trumpets, jars, surround the enemy camp, break them open, scream for God and for Gideon. They all freak out. God enters into the camp and they all kill each other. Look, God wins. Numbers have never been a problem. And his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. Did I not shut down Egypt? Did I not destroy their empire? Of course I did. And in that day, the Assyrian burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. That's awesome. You will be so fat, he can't even have his yoke around you. All right, that's a, that's a compliment somewhere. <laughs> in verse 28, it says, and here comes Assyria closer and closer from 10 miles out. Eight miles out, six miles out, four miles out, two miles out. 
cites 13 different locations as he winds closer. Verse 32, he will shake his fist at the mountain of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. He'll get that close. But behold, the warrior God will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down. The lofty will be brought low. And he will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe. And Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Do you see how powerful God is? This is the God that wages war against your problems and your fears. This is the God that stands for justice and righteousness. This is the God that fights for those that can't fight for themselves. Isn't that a God worth glorifying? Here's how we're going to close. The fact remains is that God's in charge. God's in charge of everything. However... Some of us have not been living like that. And so we will close with two pieces. Number one, I will pray for you. I will pray for you. And then number two, I'll give you the closing challenge. And then we're going to go home. The prayer begins like this. When I begin to pray, if you need to repent before the almighty God for something, you're not answering to me about what it is. I don't care. That's between you and God. If you need to repent to God for sin in your life, whatever it is, I'm going to have you stand up. By standing up, it will signify to God, I need cleansing, I'm repenting. Repentance doesn't just mean you're bummed out about it. Repentance means you will do everything in your power to change that behavior. And some of us need God's help to do that, right? Let's pray. If you need to repent, you stand up. I'm already standing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, those of us that stand here, we stand in a testimony to say, God, we are sorry. God, we know that what we've been doing is wrong. We know that you have whispered to us. You have told us time and time again to stop doing that. Stop hurting ourselves. Stop hurting other people. Stop taking advantage of situations. Stop overusing my grace. We know, God, that you cleanse us. We know that you have set us free, but we consistently put the shackles on and we join in league with the enemy that God we march under his banner and then run over to your banner and then run over to his banner God we are unstable men and women with our minds going to and fro God would you heal us would your grace shower down your word says that if we confess our sins you are faithful and you are righteous and you will forgive us of those sins and you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness God we need you to heal us today we need the power to begin to say no more and more and more set us free turn our hearts change us God, change our minds so that we will not be lost and running to polluted wells when you have given us living water. God, re rework and rewire our minds to crave you and not to crave sin. God, we repent before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Here's the closing challenge that we have for today. What is the one group that you judge the most? What irritates you the most about them? Is that in you? Is God using them to get to you? And how can you bless them? Amen?